0: welcome to Currents, your leading global voice of maternal feminism. As maternal feminists, we are inviting you to join us, using our voices in the public square for the things that deeply matter—our faith, our families, and our maternal identities. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers, and women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in our homes, our communities, and our world.
1: Hello, welcome back to Currents. I am your host, Kim Landine, and I am here with Carolina Allen and a very, very special friend, Valerie Hudson-Kassler. Valerie Hudson is a university distinguished professor and holds the George H.W. Bush Chair in the Department of International Affairs of the Bush School of Governance and Public Service at Texas A&M University, where she directs the program on women, peace, and security. She is a co-author of Sex and World Peace, the Hillary Doctrine, Sex and American Foreign Policy, and The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, among others. She's the founder of the Women's Stats Project and Database. Valerie, we are so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really pleased to be here.
2: Well, thank you everyone also for joining us. This is going to be another awesome episode where we get to discuss um, our Big Ocean Women Tenant for the month, which is that we are each unique and innately worthy of respect, and we were so thrilled that Valerie Hudson Kastler was willing to speak to us um, on this subject, since she's such a formidable, knowledgeable, you know, expert on so many incredible worldwide policies and how it impacts women. So thank you so much again, Valerie, for joining us. Thrilled to be here.
1: So, Valerie, one of the reasons we pulled you on is your kind of the expert i would even say global expert on women's issues and how the treatment of women affect not only obviously the women the children and the family unit but also the larger society or the greater society at large um if i remember right you developed the women's stats project is that correct
3: yes i'm a founder of the women's stats project which um has produced a number of different books and empirical studies. We have a large online database that's freely accessible uh, that holds about a third of a million pieces of information about the situation of women
1: worldwide. Wow wow, that's amazing. Wow It's amazing. And you've also written some monumental books. I've started getting I've started diving in since I knew we'd be having this conversation. Um, one of them women, Women in Peace and the First Political Order. Is that correct? Did I say that right?
3: Well, it's The First Political Order is the title. And the subtitle is How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. And I do consider that kind of my magnum opus. I feel like I did sort of a brain dump, which is why it's over 600 pages long.
1: (laughs) You can find that on Amazon. We will link to that. I highly, highly recommend diving into that book if you are interested in policy writing or understanding the how women's issues affect, once again, these greater societies. Um, my biggest question, Valerie, at the beginning is what even sparked your interest in women and national security issues? Like how did this Women's Dads Project and all these books start to be developed?
3: Oh, that's a very interesting tale. Uh, I'm certainly um, a woman of my time. When I went to graduate school in the 80s, um, you could have gone through my entire PhD program and not known there were women on the planet Earth because they were not mentioned in any of the courses at all.
2: So the idea that there was
3: like some connection between women and national security would have seemed totally laughable. It was if those two things were on different planets. Um, And so uh, just like my broader field of security studies um, I myself went through a personal metamorphosis where, um, you know, I began to see things in my um, my life. I began to read things that were being put out there um, that helped tear the scales off my eyes. And I began to see that national security is integrally linked to what's going on with women. Um, and my first foray into that was actually looking at the uh, tremendously lopsided sex ratios of China and India and asking whether uh, culling um, you know, tens of millions, I mean, at this point, it's well over 100 million uh, girls from the birth populations of those countries would have any national or regional or international security implications. Uh, and of course, we were able to show that, that it did. Um, and then that led me to, you know, ask a broader question. Is, um, is, is it simply sex ratios or, you know, do we find that um, a broader uh, indicators of um, the maltreatment of women uh, also lead to a poor uh, security um, uh, outcome for, for nations? And that actually culminated in this huge project that we wrote up or the U.S. Defense Department, which is chronicled in that book we were just talking about, the first political order, we were able to show definitively that outcomes for nations on 161 different indicators are significantly worse uh, if the nation is um, either promoting or allowing the maltreatment of women. So if you curse your women, you curse your nation state.
1: That is powerful. And that's what I guess my first mind I'm I'm heartbroken. As a female, a mother of two children, two female daughters specifically, I look at this and I think I'm so grateful for the pioneer mothers who have gone forward before me and are fighting this battle to create this recognition of what has globally been happening. How far back do you go into this book in history? Is this like a twenty first century book? Are we moving back in like how, how far back do you go into that?
3: Oh, that's really interesting, um, is that we do look at um, long-standing forms of uh, the maltreatment of women. And then in my favorite part of the book, which is the third part of the book, when we talk about change, we actually go back uh, to the fall of the Roman Empire and sort of trace things, you know, through Byzantium and Holy Roman Empire and so forth and so on. So, so if you're of a historical bent, I think there's something for you. The main data analysis, of course, is 21st century data that we um, tabulated and analyzed.
1: And has there been a change in the subordination and maltreatment treatment in the 21st century with women, just for our listeners that aren't gonna, gonna deep? Yeah,
2: like like, what are what would you say are like the biggest issues that women are facing in our day? Or are they the same or what are you noticing?
3: Oh, those are brilliant questions, and I will say that some of the forms of maltreatment are precisely the same as they were for our foremothers thousands of years ago, Uh, and the primary one there is, of course, violence against women, Um, and to a lesser extent, um, discriminatory rules for women, where women are not accorded uh, equal rights, uh, you know, as as human beings, at least not rights in the full sense that a man may have rights. Um, but I think you're also right in pointing out that the 21st century has actually brought with it some alarming new, um, <clears throat> excuse me, alarming new uh, forms of maltreatment um, that we really have not uh, seen um, before in a, in a very systematic uh, sense. Uh, And so among those, of course, I would include, um, you know, the commercialization of women's body parts. We know that uh, women's body parts have been commercialized in prostitution since time immemorial, absolutely. But now we have uh, commercialized uh, women's wombs. Uh, We even have commercialized women's mammary tissue I mean, um, it sounds like something out of a dystopian science fiction novel, but um, there's actually a company that harvests mammary tissue from mastectomies and uses that mammary tissue to create uh, human milk, which they then sell as bio milk. Um, And uh, I think, uh, you know, a second... um, thing that worries me is the drive towards ectogenesis, which yes. is uh, producing babies without women. Uh, and then, of course, the selling of eggs, of course, kind of goes with that because they still can't create an egg from a man yet. Um, but <laughs> yes. oh, And man. then lastly uh, yes. is, of course, the erasure of the sex class of women right? Suggesting that anyone who says they're a woman
2: is a woman. Uh, and super controversial right now, but I think yep. that it's something really worth having public discussion on, you know, yes. in a very, you know, logical, reasonable manner that's not just inflamed, you know, just inflamed by, by emotion, but just to look at it philosophically, look at it, you know, from a purely logical standpoint, what we're looking at. And so when you say the erasure of women, what are we looking at?
3: Well, yeah, we're looking at the erasure of um, what everyone has understood to be the sex class of women. So instead of there, you know, being a biological material basis to one's femaleness, we are now defining woman as anyone who says they're a woman. No, And and, and if you ask, well, what does it mean to feel like a woman? Nobody can tell you um, because there is no such thing. Uh, and so... Valerie. Then,
1: If you were to give a definition of what is a woman, what would your definition as a professor in these studies be?
3: Well, a woman is an adult human female. But you see, our language has been corrupted. Uh, The the Cambridge Dictionary has recently added a second definition. So underneath adult human female, you will find anyone who identifies as a woman.
2: Right. I think the language component is really, really interesting to look at that I don't think... Um, i've had I've had some people kind of challenge me and say, Well, what's it harming anybody? And I say it's it's doing a lot just because you know, ideas are passed through language. Meaning is passed through language. and if if the if the words don't really mean anything or if they're completely, you know, just subjective or just based on emotion and feeling, then that kind of throws us all um, into a, a sense of just uh, disarray. <laughs> where if nothing really holds meaning and value in real life, specifically when it comes to our sexed female bodies, because of the fact that we've been so oppressed and so, um, you know, commodified and so maltreated, abused, and, you know, the litany of other things throughout history because of our bodies. And then to have that be kind of like, erased. It's just a slap in the face. It's just an insult to injury, like in the highest order, because, you know, it's, it's been because of our sex female bodies that we have been second class citizens all this time. And now it's like, I don't know, it's, there's just something really cutting about it. And the fact that we are muzzled and can't, we're called TERFs, right? Trans exclusionary radical feminists or something, if you say anything of, you know, like the the meaning, of this conversation—we can't even talk about it. So it's just—it's really—it makes you wonder. Like, did we progress very far at all? Like, right?
3: Yes, I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I can't help but um, think of the analogy of Rachel Dolezal, a an absolutely white, blonde-haired woman who announced that she was black, uh, and took upon herself. Uh, all of uh, you know the uh, the rights, the authority to speak as a black person, and how outrageous everyone thought that was—that a privileged white person uh, could uh, could steal, imperialize, colonialize what it meant to be black. Uh, and I certainly feel exactly the same way about men, males who feel that they can take on the identity of those that they have oppressed and maltreated, not just for centuries, but for millennia, uh, and claim to speak for us. It is an absolute outrage. It is uh, male imperialism uh, of the worst sort and should be resisted
1: by all women of goodwill. We often will attend the Commission on the Status of Women, and that's the United Nations event that's held for women and women's issues. And it's quickly becoming, and has been for many years, an issue of women's issues, absolutely. Um, but there definitely is a big piggyback presence of the LGBTQ community. My personal belief on that is that women love, women want to support each other. Women want to try to help people through different struggles that they're facing. And that's kind of why the LGBTQ community has decided to piggyback off of the feminist movement. And um, is there data to support that? Or why is there that? Why is it that this seems to be a feminist issue when it clearly is a male erasure of feminine qualities?
3: Well, certainly the T is an erasure of, of feminine um, um, rights. There's there's absolutely no doubt about that. You cannot make progress for women if women includes men. <laughs> it always just you're not gonna get very far with that. Let me give you an example. One of the the worst things that has happened is that um, uh, males who identify as females, even though they can never be females, uh, often have their crimes recorded as being female crimes. So what we've seen in the UK is a spike in the number of female rapes and female child sexual assaults. Uh, And of course, women hardly ever in fact, under British law, the definition of rape is to use a penis. So there cannot be a female rape. Uh, and, and so what we, we find is this gross distortion uh, of the, the data of female criminal offending uh, that is absolutely being twisted by the, the addition of these crimes, which are male crimes. They are not female crimes. Uh, so uh w- we can't even know who we are and what we do and what our threats are uh, if we cannot name ourselves as a sex class that has been maltreated by the other sex class for millennia, right? It's like um a fox in the hen house calling himself a hen right yeah.
1: absolutely and how do you how do we as maternal feminists, we have very strategically used the term maternal, maternal feminist? To claim identity to the fact that we do want to progress, Um, we want to progress socially and even politically as women while we still maintain our maternal identities.
2: And maternal meaning like it's grounded in biological reality. Like that word is very, very much a stake in the ground to say, we're here, you know. How do we how do we use that or use those belief systems
1: to maintain a space for maternal feminists? and for women in general?
3: I have such a deep question. I love it. Did you know that I'm co-writing a book with two uh, political philosophers uh, that belong to the same church that I do? And we're actually writing a book on embodied feminism, which is to suggest that um, the long arc of feminism started very, very well Right, The the notion that there could be two things that were different and yet stood as equals before each other and before uh, God. But that um, during the 20th century, uh, feminism morphed into um, sort of a a critique of how our femaleness precluded equality. And that uh, in fact, uh, a woman's um, worst obstacle uh, to becoming an equal was in fact her body, uh, which is yes. completely incoherent. How can you call that feminist? Yes. The idea that a female body is a woman's worst enemy exactly. is insane. Uh, you know, it just does not make any sense whatsoever. And yet, that's what we've seen. We've seen this uh, real dissociation between women and their bodies. Uh, we've even seen um, women who have said, I would. Never under any circumstances get pregnant because the idea of my body, you know, changing and you know uh, beyond my will uh, during pregnancy is just too you know psychologically confronting for me to even uh, contemplate. Um, you know those sorts of things uh, I think are very very um, worrisome, uh, and I think it's it's certainly fed by um, what I consider to be the root. Of, of many of the plagues afflicting us today, which is now the saturation of our men in porn. Um, the latest figures I saw suggest that about 70% of American men regularly consume wow. pornography. Okay. That is uh, several times a month, 70%. And so as mothers of daughters, you ought to be very afraid that your daughters will not find any man who has not marinated his brain uh, in pornography. Uh, and, and, and this is very, very, uh, I think, very, very worrisome. And so um, I really do think we need to rebuild feminism that is based around bodies uh, and then bodies become the yardstick for what is allowable in society. So if prostitutes have 230 times the murder rate of non-prostitute women... We would outlaw that because the body is the benchmark, right? But then you have like a
2: very liberal kind of brand of feminism that's really promoting things like pornography and prostitution and kind of have bought into this commodification culture that just exploits women at every level. Um, Like you said, you know, wombs for sale and for rent and eggs. And you have, you know, just a litany of things and um, it's just really, it's, it's. I guess it's kind of like unfathomable that that these, that feminism has gone in that direction, and I think that also, like the challenges that we've faced historically because of our bodies, meaning like menstruation, um, pregnancy, lactation, um, the fact that you know once you birth a baby you know, you you have nine months of gestation, and then you have an additional, you know, number of many months, you know, uh, post uh, with with an infant in in lactation. And, and so it is, you know, there is a sacrifice there that has, you know, proved to move, you know, our nation uh, humanity forward, like it's, it's kind of shouldered by women. But the fact that that this is seen as, you know, the curse, I think is the problem, like if we're ever going to rise above in respect and in dignity and equality, like that can't be lost, or else we lose ourselves completely, we just essentially become non men, we take hormones to stop our periods, which right now is big money making thing, you know, it's um, just every single thing that can kind of stifle that Power. I think that it's power. And so it's really, I wish we could open the eyes of every woman to say, look at where we're headed if we don't fully accept our bodies, protect our bodies, differentiate, differentiate ourselves from the other, you know, sexed male bodies, but just embrace it and see it as a power
1: one of the things that I've personally experienced is that there is definitely a vulnerability that comes with that biological power um, in pregnancy, as well as postpartum. There's, I, I really, I have beautiful daughters, but I apparently really stink at gestation. Um, I'm in bed for nine months and there's a true, I'm i I'm on average a fairly physically capable athletic woman, but when I am pregnant, I become extremely vulnerable And so I see that vulnerability and I can see how it's been exploited in other women. And I can understand the desire from some, um, even a very loud minority to say, there is weakness in this. What would you say to someone that says, you know, this is vulnerable. I cannot be this person because of that vulnerability. How do we as a society build up societal trends or political political movements that protect women in these very, very vulnerable states that they enter into when they claim their biology as women.
3: Well, I think we've done a miserable job. Nobody's done a good job of this. Um, And I think that's the reason that birth rates are falling around the world. Um, Women used to not have any choice but to reproduce the societies in which they lived. And these societies often maltreated them. But even so, they reproduce them. But now that there is effective contraception, women now can vote whether to reproduce the societies that have maltreated them. And what you're seeing is it's not just that fertility rates are dipping below replacement rates. Fertility rates are in the toilet, right, as in... um, China will have half as many people at the end of this century as it did at the beginning of this century, right? Korea may well disappear completely within the next 120 years. I mean, it's, it's just stunning to me to see how all of the games that men play in geopolitics, in power politics, uh, ultimately rest on women's labor, women's willingness to reproduce the societies. Uh, And I think women are now saying, you know, um, this is a terrible society for women and I won't bring women into it. I won't bring women or men into it. Now, I'm not saying that that's the answer, please don't get me wrong here. But what I'm saying is there's a sense in which people like you and I who have a different idea of what society can be and who have forged different societies within our households right. that do not look like the average household outside uh, you know, of our four walls, right? Are, are gonna have a different path, right? I had eight children and I'm really, really glad that I did. And I found great meaning in it. Um, but I know young women who are dating uh, young men who should not be fathers, because they can maintain an erection while strangling and punching her, right? That is death right there. That is not just the death of the man, the death of the woman's soul, is the death of the entire civilization, right there encapsulated, Right. right? And so I believe that the societies around us will disintegrate because of what has broken down between men and women. And now that women have a choice to say, hell no, I'm not going to recreate this society. Mm-mm, no way. They're fleeing womanhood as if it were a house on fire. Look at the incredible increase in the number of adolescent girls who say they're boys. Right? There was a time in which it was only you know older men who had some you know, sexual fetish, who wanted to be women. Now, the, the overwhelming majority of uh, people who are transitioning are adolescent girls who have seen the porn and have said, there is no way on earth that I am going to be that woman. I want out of womanhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I really do see civilizational collapse Uh, And we do see it in the fertility rates of most of what we would consider to be the more progressive nations on earth.
1: I love how you said that women are now having the choice to vote with their biology. I will not be bringing my children into the society that does not respect women. And I very much agree with that. Like there needs, I demand and I will continue to demand that there's a healing that occurs in our society Um, And I am grateful for the men that do step up, Big Ocean. We believe in the interdependence of men and women. And we have seen the possibility of interdependence, where men and women rise together, respecting each other's differences um, and the strength in those differences. That is the protection that children need to be raised in. And I am of the belief, and we at Big Ocean, are striving to achieve that gain, that world gain, um, first and foremost in our own hearts as women. We need to demand that we deserve to be treated Um, a certain way we must demand in our homes first and foremost with our interpersonal relationships which we see great success in when it comes from the internal empowerment we need to raise our women to believe that we need to raise our sons to believe that and ultimately mothers have intergenerational power more power than any political position holds and so as a mother in the home what how do we train the rising generation how do we train the big ocean members in our waves our women achieving vast empowerments, these groups to really get on board with the idea that this change needs to happen, but this change needs to happen first and foremost in the homes and that it will trickle out into the communities at large, protecting their children and raising a more resilient, more interdependent generation.
3: Well, I, I perfectly agree with everything that you've just said, absolutely. And uh, you know the s- strongest thing you can do to save the future is, is raise your children in a household where the mother and father respect and love each other as equals, uh, where there is no maltreatment, where there is no porn use, um, where there is no financial abuse or emotional abuse, um, where you give them a vision of why there are men and women and how that could be a good thing and not a horrible thing. Um, I mean, what you pass on is what you you live, right? What you've lived, what you've been able to create in your home. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I did want many children, is that I knew I could do that. And so I thought it was important that I I actually do that <laughs> in real life. You know, put, uh, walk the walk, right. bear the child, not just talk the talk about feminism, yeah. but to raise eight feminists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job. And certainly my daughters and I, uh, we have two left in the home. Um, They're sophomores in high school. And we talk all the time, right, about not settling, uh, about rejecting uh, potential suitors who are consuming porn, about red flags, um, about um, sharing household responsibilities. I mean, we, we have very, very open discussions. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, nobody had open discussions like that. You know, we just didn't. And so it was like, uh, you know, generations of girls were led like lambs to the slaughter. Right? They just did not understand that um, um, many times men trade the semblance of love in order to get sex and that women are are trading a not very enthusiastic, you know, engagement in sex for any little drop of love. Uh, And, you know, that's still the case today. Still the case today. But at least uh, in our homes, there will be uh, women who understand all of that and are
2: prepared to reject it. They will not be led as lambs to the slaughter that's so powerful. And I think our society today that there's there's quite a bit that we can do. And I think it's a return to this kind of thoughtful discussion that we're having. Um, if young people, if if young women, you know, were able to truly understand um, the power of their sexed female bodies and take a sense of, you know, pride in that. and And like you said, not settle, but demand that of men to say, you know, but, but do it collectively, you know, um, to, to kind of, there is like this economy of sex. And right now I feel as though women have the really bad end of the deal. They um, do, And I think that if we were to collectively rise up and say, you know what, this is a power that I have that you, you know, um, is not cheap anymore. Maybe it was cheap in the past, but we're turning the tide. And, um, and we have some, we have, you know, a, a standard of, of elevation that we are expecting, you know, the men in our communities to uphold to. And I think that it's possible with good mentors, good men in there, in the world that are that are going to say, hey, I'm doing this. You know, we, at Big Ocean Women, we talk about the irreplaceable role of fathers. And I think that that's the, the masculine in its most beautiful, you know, um, date, whereas, you know, it's, you're, you're just this incredible protective force in all of the most beautiful ways that, that support life, you know, and I think that if that can be showcased and if women are saying, that's what we all want and, you know, and collectivistically raising and walking the walk within our homes, I feel like that's a hopeful future, you know?
3: i like to have hope too. Um, I think it's slowly being beaten out of me. Um, but um, I know that I've created it in my home. I know my children are prepared to create it in their homes, Um, but there's things that give me pause. So, for example, um, one of my friends who is a political philosopher is teaching um, women philosophers, and they've just finished reading Mary Wollstonecraft's on the Vindication of the Rights of Women. Uh, And uh, Wollstonecraft, I think, very accurately suggests that the fountain of civilizational decay is the lack of male sexual integrity, that lack of male sexual continence. Mm -hmm. And um, my friend laid this before her students at a Southern California university. And her female students, because no man's going to take a class on women philosophers, but her female students were like, She's absolutely right, but it's unrealistic. There is no way that we can change men. So you're, you're right that the key is female solidarity. But one of the great tragedies of our mortal experience is that there is no female solidarity. There is no female solidarity. If you wanna look and you wanna see the, the most vigorous proponents of uh, self-identification instead of biology as a basis for uh, signing the word woman, you will find women at the front lines, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't know what you can do. Uh, You know, I have spent countless hours asking myself, how is it possible that women are at the forefront of destroying the possibilities for women. And I, I, I can't tell you what is the
2: solution
3: for that.
2: Well, I think, I think, I mean, I'm just looking at like, from a demographic lens, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's those that are creating safe places in their homes for, you know, um, I don't know, the fruition of, of, of sexed female identity as a positive thing, you know, and then seeing interdependent relationships with positive interdependent relationships with men play out that are the ones having large families. And then maybe, you know, in a few generations, um, from a, a massive, you know, social experiment that hasn't proven you know very good that maybe that there's a way we can kind of come to our senses again um which is not to say you know i i hope that this podcast that we can still look at this objectively and still find compassion for those that are you know struggling in whatever shape or form but you know these these things need to be talked about a hundred percent and i think that um yeah I don't know, I I tend to have a lot of faith in, in our generational power that Kim talked about. Um, I think that it's those that are really struggling with internally, you know, with, with things that are, are less likely to want to perpetuate the human family, and then those that are really working collaboratively in this equal partnership. It's more sustainable. I mean, it's just—it's an—it's the, you know, biological way to bring up progeny and young is to have, you know, this equal partnership. It just—it's easier. Um, not to say that you know single moms out there aren't doing an incredible job. They are. Um, but I think that time will tell. You know that wow, there's something to this family unit. You know, there's something to this having a mother and father and bringing up children that just it fits better. And it's just an easier situation and that we should all aim towards that as a, as a goal and not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like it's not a defective, you know, institution. It's worth saving. Right.
1: I also get the lack of hope, Valerie. Um, I think the more research that I do, the more that I dive into the history specifically um, of whether that's society at large or political institutions, or even theological institutions, I, I find myself becoming very um, dishopeful of the equality that can exist because of the power that is in play. Um, I have found that it is as you have found that it is often the women that stand at the forefront of their own subjugation and maltreatment. No, no they protect the abusers more often than not, whether that's in a social situation, whether that's in a political situation. Theologically, I am seeing it over and over and over again. It becomes very disheartening. And in your expert opinion, what is the root cause for this long history of female abuse and maltreatment in all these different forms?
3: The root cause is clearly um, human sexual dimorphism, right? Uh, The male body Is bigger, stronger, and invests minimally in reproduction. Women's body is smaller, weaker, and invests a huge amount of energy and time in reproduction. You know, the minute you set up these two different kinds of bodies, right, uh, the moment that you have set up the ease of subordinating and maltreating women. But clearly the creator didn't mean it to be so, right? The creator meant it to be a test. The only uh, civilizations that can possibly sustain themselves over time, now that women have a veto on whether they reproduce their societies, are civilizations in, in which you take those differences and you do not make them a foundation for hierarchy, of men over women, right? It's the great test of every human generation, right? Um, and the test is: here's the easy thing, right? Make that woman basically your slave. That's the Andrew Tate approach to life, isn't it? And then the other approach is: gosh, this is clearly right meant to be a you know um, an equal partnership. Right, where each party brings something incredibly valuable to the relationship, and equally respected for it, and equally loved for it. So you can really see, right, civilizations, you know, um, divide according to how they deal with the original temptation of the ease with which men can dominate women. The average man can kill the average woman with his bare hands within the space of 15 minutes, right? So again, if we're gonna be materially based, right? Then we have to start with that huge temptation to slide into the subordination of women because of our biology
1: what are the solutions like clearly there are issues clearly there are even generational issues clearly there is a large discrepancy in almost every facet of life between men and women women and clearly there's these issues so what is it what is that third chapter what did you what society is is all
3: about change right uh and we go back and you know there's there's certain things that we've kind of already done as a civilization, like, you know, we've, um, we've dismantled certain things that really, really kept women down, right? Such as child marriage and polygamy and other sorts of things that we talk about in the book, right? Things that just made women and men on a completely different playing field entirely, right? Most Western societies have dismantled that, right? So um, that's been all to the good. I want you to know that. I think that Western societies really have dismantled a lot of this, the, the systemic um, discrimination against women. But what we have not dismantled is violence against women, which if anything is now rising within those same Western societies. Uh, and I think a lot of it again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record goes back to the sheer scale on which our men are marinating their brains in violent pornography yeah you know, when you when you see pornography now it's 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 not like i you know I remember finding a Playboy magazine sometime when I was a girl. It's not that at all. What you're witnessing are crime scenes, yeah, right. These people would be arrested and put in jail if it was not a porn film. This is torture, right? This is actual torture. This is assault that's happening. And that is how we're teaching boys that uh, sexual bodily relations between men and women are meant to be. Uh, And so the big question for me now is violence against women and sexual integrity, right? Can you not harm a woman physically please can you not entertain yourself and train your body to respond to violent sex sexual intercourse if our men can't turn those two things around then women will vote with their wombs
2: well i think too though valerie like i'm thinking like how depraved societies just become related to sex because, I mean, in kink culture, like there's, you know, and sadomasochism and all of this stuff, it's like, like the way that they're talking about it is like, oh, it's a power struggle play and we, I have a safe word and this and that. And they're trying so much to please this kind of sadistic fantasy world that I think that there are a lot of women that are like, I don't know, saying that they enjoy it, saying that this is part of being sexually healthy and sex positive and all sorts of things. And so if you have people that are like, well, it's my freedom and it's, you know, the way that I'm expressing myself and it's none of your business. But I think that goes back to what you're saying is like, where is the solidarity? Like we all need to kind of come to this baseline understanding that this is off limits and then kind of hold each other to that standard. If it's ever going to work, Louise Perry's brilliant book, *The Case Against the Sexual
3: Revolution*, that came out just last year, um, I think says it brilliantly. She says, "Look, you know, not all desires are good." Mm-hmm. That sounds like you know ethics 101, but to the depraved culture in which we live, all right? It's shocking. That not all desires are good, and not all desires should be legal, and not all desires should be justified. But that's where you've got to start, right? You've got to start with that.
1: So for our listeners, our women, there was a lot of steps that men needed to take in order to start achieving some of this equality and this true interdependence between the sexes. For our listeners and for our women, and for me personally, what are those steps that we can create to make a better world for our children to stand up and say, this this is a line that I'm going to hold.
3: No, oh, I tell them the great key is sexual integrity. The the body-to-body relationship between man and woman is sexual intercourse, right? You, just, you destroy uh, the integrity, the honor, the respect, the love in that relationship, and all you reap is death.
1: So have you found a society, Valerie, that exemplifies the equality of men and women that no. has shown... No. No. Okay. I was really hoping there would be like a yes to that question. No, no,
3: none whatsoever. I mean, if, even if you looked at some of the Nordic countries, their rates of, you know, intimate partner violence are significant.
1: So I guess like often is the case change comes from within and comes from the home. So Valerie, you've mentioned a number of times, the interdependent relationship with you, you have with your husband, the love that you have between each other and the love that you have for your children and, trying to grow them into capable human beings that are able to love others. What is it about your relationship that causes that lasting peace between you and your husband?
3: Well, very honestly, it's our devotion to God, right? Uh, it's, It's my devotion to God and my husband's devotion to God. It is our devotion to the ideal of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother who are married and live together in love and respect and have done so for eternity. Um, So we not only believe we should do it, we believe that our heavenly parents are doing it and that as their children, we have every expectation that we can be successful. You know, I view the kinds of homes that I've made and that perhaps you have made as being almost like uh, the monasteries during the dark ages that kept um, the light alive. Uh, until the time when that light could be re-embraced, okay? So it's uh, it's kind of ironic to think of a home with a bunch of uh, rowdy kids as being like a monastery, but we play that same role. The fact that we exist, even though we are a tiny minority within our own culture, the fact that we exist, the fact that we guard our children, uh, to a much greater extent than others do, so that they are separated somewhat from the culture around them. Uh, this, is, uh, this is an extremely valuable thing. One day, one day, after our civilizations have collapsed, there will be time for those green shoots to come back. And it is our monasteries, right? Our homes that will be the source of those green shoots.
1: Beautiful.
3: That's
2: beautiful. The
1: idea of the divine feminine um, doesn't necessarily exist in mainstream, a lot of mainstream religions. And that's something that I'm very familiar with and become, um, it's become a passion project of mine. And I love that that's what was addressed. My own journey started with this idea that if God is man, then man is God. Unless woman is God, then women, there's no equality between the sexes. So I love that the very foundation of your home goes back to an equal relationship among divinity with a recognition of male and divine feminine qualities in relationships.
3: That's right. In fact, the centerpiece of our living room is a huge reproduction of a painting by Rose Datok Dahl, called The Bale is Beginning to Burst, which shows our heavenly father and our heavenly mother. So our children see that 32 by 32, all right? That is the centerpiece of our home. And that is who we want to be like one day. And that because they exist, then it is possible for us to be like them someday.
1: Valerie, we appreciate your deep insights, your, your view of, you know, you once said that your hope is beginning to diminish, but I would say that that's not the case. I think your hope really resides in the divinity. It resides in yourself and it resides in your home, which is where true hope is stored. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your expertise. We will add the links to everything you've spoken of, including that beautiful picture um, in the show notes. And we encourage all women to really dive deep into what this conversation has been. It has been heavy, Um, but there is hope and that hope resides in you, that hope resides in your home and that hope resides in your relationship with the divine.
0: You have been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, on Instagram and on Facebook. We are each one powerful drop in a big ocean of change. Join us in one of our local chapters, Waves, or Women Achieving Vast Empowerment. Our music is First Rain by Ian Post. Editing and production is by Fifth East Productions. Please join us again next week for in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and about people who are trying to make a difference in their communities.